Hey there, this is Kim, a teacher from Aurora, Colorado, where I just said goodbye to a great school year, and I'm about to say hello to summer 2018. I'll be sure to keep up with all things political this summer through the NPR Politics Podcast. This particular podcast was recorded at... 1.11 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, May 29th. I remember those days being able to look forward to summer as a teacher. Good for them. Remember that things might have changed by the time you hear this. All right, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. This morning, the Supreme Court rejected an appeal that may leave Arkansas with only one center that provides abortions. And the White House says the trade war with China is on hold. But President Trump is once again talking about imposing tariffs on $50 billion with a B in Chinese products. I'm Sarah McCammon. I'm covering the White House. I'm Scott Horsley. I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So it's another decision day at the U.S. Supreme Court. And today, the big decision was a rejection. The court sent an appeal of a restrictive abortion law in Arkansas back to a lower court. Now, all nine justices declined to take the case brought by Planned Parenthood, and none of them dissented. So let's dig into this. Domenico, you've been writing about this. What was the background on the case? This is the court saying that it's rejecting an appeal from Planned Parenthood to block this uh, law from going through in uh, Arkansas that would not allow abortion by medication. So people might be familiar with having heard of RU486. And this is believed to be one step along the process. It's a very similar thing to what happened with Texas. When Texas came forward with their case, the Supreme Court initially sent it back to a lower court to sort of say, get your ducks more in a row. You have to vet this a little bit more, uh, fill all of that out, and then come back to us. So a lot of people believe that this is just one step in the process. However, That doesn't necessarily mean that that won't have real-world implications. So there could be more legal decisions down the road, but for the time being, this Arkansas law against using medication to induce abortions stays. It's it's the law in Arkansas. And it's important to be clear that the medication abortions are just, if I can give some quick background on it, it is non-surgical. So basically a woman can take a pill or a set of pills to induce um, essentially like miscarriage. It's done in the earlier stages of pregnancy. And it's an increasingly popular option because women don't have to go and get a surgical procedure. Right. So surgical abortions are still legal in Arkansas, obviously, as they are legal nationwide. Uh, sometimes that kind of gets forgotten in the debate uh, between abortion rights and uh, those who are against abortion rights. The thing is, there's only three facilities in Arkansas that currently perform either abortion by medication or surgical abortions. And uh, the thinking is here that this would likely shutter two of those facilities. Um, what's happened so far, according to Planned Parenthood, is uh, women who've already scheduled procedures, medication abortion procedures have been told they can't do this now. And uh, one sort of technical detail about this Arkansas law, it doesn't actually ban medication abortion, but what it does is it imposes such strict rules on these clinics, essentially requiring that providers have an agreement with a doctor who has hospital admitting privileges. And so far, from what I'm told, the clinics in, in Arkansas have not been able to do that. This is part of a larger strategy. Uh, Domenico, you alluded to to the Texas decision, the whole women's health decision from a couple of years ago. And what these have in common is basically abortion rights opponents have pushed for 
pretty heavy restrictions on how abortions can be performed, not banning them necessarily, but saying clinics and doctors have to meet all of these rules in order to perform abortions. If they don't meet them, the clinics either have to close or stop providing some of those services. And I mean, Arkansas itself has a pretty long history with trying to institute some of these uh, restrictive abortion laws. I mean, in the 1990s, during Bill Clinton's presidency, there were some big fights there over this. Um, recently, in 2013, it tried to institute a 12-week abortion ban, uh, which would have been at the time the strictest in the country, and that was struck down by a federal court. And uh, the federal appeals court that did strike that down was a three-judge panel that was all judges appointed by George W. Bush at the time. So, you know, this has gone through various iterations, but with Trump being president now and him going and talking to a lot of these anti-abortion rights groups and saying that he's got their back, I think that in the strongest pro-Trump, most conservative states in the country, you're going to continue to see efforts like this looking to curtail abortion rights as much as possible. So in this case, it sounds like uh, women seeking an abortion in Arkansas are for the time being going to have fewer options open to them. Uh, The clinic that's closest to them may go out of business. But the legal decision is just a sort of procedural step and not the last word on this. And I guess the idea that all nine justices were in agreement on that suggests that this was just a case that wasn't quite ripe to to take up on its merits. Exactly. And if people go and read the reason for not taking it up, they don't address the merits whatsoever of the of the law itself. It's all procedural. It's all the vetting. So, for example, the the lower court that had decided to overturn the injunction of this law basically said to Planned Parenthood, you need to outline how many real women would be impacted by this. They didn't do so. So it's it's questions like that that Planned Parenthood has to kind of now go back and fill in. Because there was a case, Sarah, you can refresh my memory about this, but there was a case a couple of years ago where the Supreme Court did strike down one of these very restrictive anti-abortion measures that was nominally uh, passed in the name of protecting the health of the women seeking the procedure, but which the court went through sort of chapter and verse and said, there is no medical justification for this. The outpatient procedures are performed on, on that are much more dangerous at all times. And the court's makeup really hasn't changed since then. Uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch has taken the place of Justice Scalia, but in terms of the politics of the court, it's pretty much the same. Right. And that decision was the Texas case, Whole Women's Health, that, that basically said these kinds of restrictions, if they're too stringent um, and, and you don't establish that there is a real health reason for them, that imposes an undue burden and it's unconstitutional. Um, so that is the hope of abortion rights advocates that that ultimately the, the thinking in, in this Arkansas case will line up with that. And Planned Parenthood is going to a district court asking them to essentially block this law. So we'll, we'll see. What right. Happens. And that was a 5-3 ruling the Texas case, and it was sent back once. So that context is important. And as long as we're talking about abortion, obviously the politics here in the U.S. are what they are. But, you know, Ireland has just gone through a really interesting public debate and vote about abortion. Overwhelmingly, right, with a, a past a referendum, the people there voted to to legalize abortion after it had been banned for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of this has to actually do with the sort of changing culture and climate within Ireland itself, actually. You know, it's obviously a very Catholic country, like Italy, for example, Spain, very Catholic countries where the church has always had significant influence. Um, And religious influence, uh, personal religious influence has had tremendous influence on policymaking and the law, unlike in the United States, where 
uh, there's always this sort of invisible dividing line or, uh, you know, some people try to cross it, others uh, try to hold that line. But in Ireland, it's always sort of bled over. And what's happening in the country now, though, is it's become much more secularized uh, with the younger generation that's sort of not liking a lot of the policies that the church has instituted. And some of the activists who were feel, felt quite emboldened by this overwhelming referendum victory want to go after schools now and say that they don't believe that the church should be in schools. So that kind of battle between uh, public life and religious life is going to continue to play out there. And I think, it, you know, it does sort of beg the question, if we had a vote here, what would happen? Because that's not, you know, abortion is legal in the U.S., but not because of a referendum. That's right. We had a columnist from the Irish Times was on Morning Edition this morning, and he said he thought that this referendum in Ireland would sort of put an end to the debate. Uh, Whichever side you were on, people would feel like, all right, the Irish public has had a chance to weigh in on this, and the decision was cast. In this country, of course, the Roe v. Wade decision sort of put a hold on that political process way back in 1973. There's been lots of politicking around the edges, but the decision has basically been made by the courts. We haven't had that kind of referendum. The political energy has generally been on the side of the anti-abortion activists because they're the ones who want to change something. If you did ever have the Supreme Court strike down Roe v. Wade, strike down the sequence of laws that have, the decisions that have followed that, and you really saw strict anti-abortion measures go into place, which Ireland had, and the people saw that, it would be very interesting to see what the politics would be like in this country. Well, here's the thing, right? Referenda in this country are actually fairly controversial in many ways, not because of always what's on the ballot, but because of the organizing uh, around the campaigns to for one side or the other. I mean, you think about the drop-off in this country between presidential elections and midterms. There are about 30% fewer people who show up in midterm years than in presidential elections. So when you get down from that sort of celebrity status of the presidential candidate who's running to something like one question on a ballot. Sure, it can inspire a lot of energy, but it doesn't mean everybody's going to vote. So, you know, if we were to just take a poll and it's going to depend on abortion on a, the way you word the question. Yeah, I've obviously. got several polls spread in front of me here, actually. And, you know, Gallup's has a majority, uh, I think, about 79% if you combine those who say abortion should be legal under all circumstances and at least certain circumstances. So a majority say it should be illegal at least sometimes. But if you look at the Pew Center poll, it's 57 percent say legal in all or most cases. It really depends on, you know, how big your poll is and how you phrase it. But majorities in both. But majorities cases. in both cases. And and interestingly, another polling firm, um, the Public Religion Research Institute just came out in April with some polling that indicated that younger people were shifting more and more towards supporting abortion rights. Right. It's a huge gray area. I mean, just if you look at the Gallup poll, you know, you combine those two numbers, but one but the one line says legal under any circumstances is only 29% or roughly uh, a little less than one in three people. Uh, illegal in all circumstances is 18%. So those two are certainly not even close to a majority, and most people believe something in between, where legal under only certain circumstances is the majority of the country. Which yep. is, in fact, the law of the land right now. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but first I want to let you know that we're hitting the road. This Friday, we're doing a live show in Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll be doing a deep dive on the midterm elections. Domenico, you'll be there. I am very excited about Charlotte, and I will not, like Michelle Obama, say I'm looking forward to good barbecue. 
because apparently that was a big faux pas of hers because Charlotte's not known for its barbecue. Well, although the, the, I will, the Carolinas although are. They are, but I will testify you can get good barbecue in Charlotte. It's just not the place that's known for it. But I, yeah, but I have good friends in Charlotte and looking forward to seeing them too. I'm sure their barbecue is good there, but I'm from Kansas City, so that's where my <laughs> loyalties are when it comes to barbecue. Anyway, regardless of what kind of barbecue you like or if you don't like it, head to nprpresents.org for tickets. You can see Domenico and the others this Friday in Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Newsy, the TV news channel with honest, in-depth context on the stories that matter. Newsy is for people who aren't satisfied with getting only the loudest part of the story. Newsy delivers more, more context, more solutions, and greater understanding of the people and events that shape our world. Learn more at newsy.com watch. How much would you pay to avoid morning traffic? Why are plane tickets to Boise so expensive? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of The Indicator. In every episode, we take on a new unexpected idea to help you make sense of the day's news. Listen every afternoon on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. We've talked a lot about the escalating trade standoff between Trump and China. And this morning, that story took another turn when President Trump revived discussions about possible tariffs on $50 billion in Chinese products. Now, this is a big deal right now because the administration had said it would not impose new tariffs on China while the two countries negotiate trade terms. So, Scott, you are a resident trade expert what is this all about? What are these potential tariffs? What would they do? Well, everyone's sort of trying to make sense of this, including the Chinese, because just over a week ago, the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, had said, hey, we're putting the trade war on hold. So it looked as if, you know, the, the, all the parties were getting ready to kind of sit down around the table and, and talk about how to work out their differences. And now, kind of seemingly out of the blue, the White House puts out a statement once again, reviving this idea of slapping big tariffs, 25% tariffs on tens of billions of dollars worth of Chinese exports, also imposing new restrictions on what kinds of U.S. companies Chinese investors can buy into. Uh, none of this has gone into effect yet, and it may not go into effect. That's the example we've seen in the past from, from Trump. But it certainly you know, roils the waters again and invites the possibility that China comes back and says, okay, well, if you're going to play hardball, we're going to impose big tariffs on soybeans or airplanes or other U.S. exports. So why now? That's a good question. It's not entirely clear whether uh, President Trump was just irritated at some of the heat he's been taking about maybe going easy on this Chinese telecom company, ZTE, that's been in the news a lot lately. Right. So wanted to kind of a, a show of force. Uh, maybe the, the hardliners within the administration got the upper hand in some arm wrestling match over the long weekend. It's not entirely clear what provoked this this latest sort of tough rhetoric from the White House, but the Chinese aren't sure what to make of it. And of course, this also comes at a sensitive time geopolitically because Trump is counting on China's President Xi to help rein in North Korea. Yeah, there's, there are a few things happening in Asia right now. <laughs> All kinds of stuff going on. Uh -huh. So every time we circle around this topic of will they or won't they impose tariffs, you know, the question is, what does it mean for, for farmers, for you know companies that rely on steel? We, we do so much business with China. What what does the so let's come back to that question again. What does this mean for American companies? Well, and interesting you mentioned steel because we've also been talking about a separate set of tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. China is not a huge supplier of steel and aluminum to the United States, although it is a big player on the world stage. But those steel and aluminum 
tariffs, which the president announced with great fanfare a couple of months ago, have been mostly on hold. Some countries are paying them, but most countries got a break. That break is supposed to end at the end of this week, and those tariffs could go into effect against big suppliers like the European Union, Canada, and Mexico. If something isn't worked out to avoid that, uh, you're going to see a lot of pushback. Europeans are talking about imposing tariffs of their own on Harley-Davidson motorcycles and Kentucky bourbon and Agriculture is always a big soybeans, target. right? Soybeans. So those are not randomly chosen products, as you right. know, Domenico. Those are <laughs> those are carefully calculated for maximum political impact. Well, and the political impact of this, I mean, obviously, depending on whether or not Americans wind up paying more money for their goods and realize that, like, an eight dollar toy for their kid suddenly is twenty dollars, that would be a major difference if that were something that were to play out. But I assume that would take some time before you would actually see that happen. Um, Politically speaking, you know, the president's in an interesting situation here because his views on trade have actually kind of inverted the Republican Party in a way that you would never have thought possible, you know, and there's been this struggle inside the White House on the quote unquote globalists versus uh, the, the sort of more nativist populace. And when I was looking at some of the polling on trade, Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, 71% of Americans, according to a recent Harvard poll, said that they think that the U.S. should do something about addressing this $375 billion trade imbalance with China. But 52%, a majority, disapprove of Trump's tariffs on aluminum and steel. So once you start getting into the details here, it's not always going to be something that is clear, which means there's a lot of room here for the message war to be fought. One thing I'm really curious about is, you know, Some of the big sectors that could get hit if there is a trade war or something short of that retaliation, agriculture, manufacturing, these are sectors that, you know, are huge in places that have by and large supported President Trump. Right, where Trump won. And so, you know, what does it mean for him long term? What what does it mean for the midterms? And that's that's no accident. I mean, the the other countries that are trying to put the hurt on President Trump over these policies, they can they can read a red and blue map just like any of us. And they they know where the the pain points are. It was cliche during the campaign for Trump to go out and say that he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not lose any of his supporters. But there are certain things that he's continuing to do economically. (laughs) He didn't carry New York City. Right. Obviously. <laughs> Fifth Avenue would be but fine. If you're going out into the middle of a main street in South Dakota and saying, I'm blowing up all of your soybeans, uh, we'll see if that's something he can actually do. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how far he can take it. And I mean, a lot of people voted for him, at least they said for economic reasons. So if his economic policies, you know, how will they play out? How how will they affect those parts of the country? I was just in Michigan a few weeks back when the president did a rally there. And one thing he said was he specifically addressed farmers and he said, I'm going to need you to trust me on this. There might be a little pain in the short term. But how much pain are people willing to take? Trump's got a long leash with his supporters. I think we saw during the campaign that culture outweighed economics in many ways. But if people start feeling the pain in their pockets, that's always going to wind up trumping whatever the other issues are, especially considering that the people who had a lot of the culture issues with Trump actually were doing pretty well economically, the people who supported him because of culture. If there is some pain in their pocket, then you could see a turn. But boy, that's a long way away. All right. I think that's a wrap for this week. We'll be back later this week. Our email address for your comments, questions, and timestamps. 
is nprpolitics at npr.org. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps new listeners find us. And keep up with our coverage on npr.org, NPR Politics on Facebook, and of course on your local public radio station. I'm Sarah McCammon. I'm covering the White House. I'm Scott Horsley. I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Thank you.